Good morning, good afternoon, um, good evening, everybody. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you today and um, to be marking uh, International Peace Day, uh, which is today, uh, with some um, extraordinary colleagues uh, for the, I think this is the eighth or ninth of our sessions on um, the coming of age of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda 21 and 2021 series of conversations that we've been having at the Center for Women, Peace and Security at the LSE. Um, I am um, delighted this morning, um, this afternoon, to be with you um, and have my guests from around the world. Um, I'm currently in Washington, D.C. I have uh, General Romeo Dallaire from Canada, uh, Rosa Emilia Salamanca from Colombia, and uh, Gisu Jahangiri, based out of Paris and immersed, I think, in, Wash in Afghanistan um, these days. And the conversation that we're going to be having um, is really about the question of, um, sorry, that is really about the, the, the question about peace and what we mean by peace um, in the 21st century. Understanding that we are now in a situation in Afghanistan where in the name of military withdrawal and bringing our troops home, um, we have actually probably instigated uh, a level of violence or insecurity that we still don't yet know, the implications of it, which are still unclear in terms of transnational violent extremism and potentially what is going to happen to Afg Afghans in Afghanistan. So there is that context. We have the Colombia context where um, the discussion has been that there were 60 years of war, there was a peace process. We're meant to be in peace, but are we at peace? And, and then the issues around um, stabilization, the role of the military, um, and, uh, and the question of international peacekeeping and, and, and so forth, that, that, is, that is still a, a challenge um, around the world. I'm going to start um, with a round of just uh, introductions and questions. Um, and I'll start with uh, Rosa Emilia. Rosa Emilia Salamanca, you are the founder of CIASE in Colombia. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do and how you ended up doing this in your work. Thank you. Well, I'm, um, I, I am a Colombian, a middle-class Colombian woman. I have my family. I have uh, two children and a granddaughter. And I was involved because my country has been suffering from several periods of conflict for a long, long time. I think Colombian people don't really know what peace means. So I think there is a lot of compromise of many people, many common people as me, that are working in peace, that are all the time like trying to find a path to have a better life for our children, for our people, for us, without violence, without being all the time in this stressing environment of being uh, in a constant kind of recycled war that we live once and again. So I came to this because I really believe we can change things. And if, if people don't participate, if common people do not participate, it's very difficult to make changes. You, I think I really believe that every citizen, women or men, should be part of, of these changes. So my commitment 
has arisen because I also am I, I'm an activist. I have seen my country, I have traveled, I, and I'm a feminist. And from this perspective, you see the suffering of people. You see the suffering of many women that have been impacted so uh, incredibly by the conflict. And, 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 and you really begin to believe and you believe that you can make changes, that with your effort, not only you, but with others, you can make changes. So I really believe in that, and, and that's why I constantly work in these issues of peace. Rosa, I'm going to come back to you when, to, 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 to share with us what you mean, issues of peace, because I think that that question is something that is itself um, not understood very well. Um, Gisujan, Gisujan Giri, you are the founder of Open uh, Armanshar Open Asia. You are the vice president of FIDH. Um, you've worked in Tajikistan, Afghanistan. Tell us a little bit about what got you into this work, and what what have you been doing? What is what what is it like um, to be in your shoes? Thank you. <laughs> I mean, of course, our personal lives are important because this is what the world community we have we're a mixture of all our life stories. Um, I won't uh, talk about it too much, but as a very young adolescent, I was confronted with war. And, uh, and then, I don't know, I'm from that brave generation where we think we have a responsibility, so we had to know, go beyond saving our own lives or our family and uh, think about what is it we have to do. Uh, to stop this, the, the militarized environments we live in, the invasions, the big strategies, etc. And so I think it was in trying to find responses which could, uh, as Rosa was saying, stop the suffering around us, right? Um, we are all, mankind has this specificity of wanting to be in solidarity to stop suffering. Of course, I'm in a round table with a general, so I would really like to hear how he became a general and why he became a general. But my question is, so what could we do? I remember I was in Tajikistan and suddenly civil war started. Tanks came to the town. And I met a group of women who were saying, we the mothers of the city of Dushanbe, we have decided to go and uh, create a ring around the town to stop the tanks from coming. Now, that was extremely wishful thinking because in, in a couple of minutes, the, the women were dispersed and the tanks came and a five-year civil war started and 100,000 people were killed. And, uh, and so it was us good citizens, and that is a real question, in the face of, of huge tra tragedies, big tanks, big bombs, sometimes the mother of all bombs, like the one during the Trump administration was, was uh, thrown on Afghanistan. We didn't re really hear more about it afterwards. What is it that we can do? We have a backbone. We are obliged to believe in the law and the institutions and in how clever a people can be in trying to change the conversation. That's what we can do as citizens. And so that's why I think that feminists, human rights defenders, the engineers who build the roads, the development actors together can imagine 
that we are on the front line. All these, all these people are on the front line. How can you, without fighting for equality, gender equality, justice, and end to impunity, without referring to the law, which was, which is, I'm talking about international law, regional law, laws on war, laws on, on the relationship between nations, etc. Without that, how can we forget that? Of course, the realization of civil, political, economic, social, and cultural rights. In that absence, peace has no meaning. What we're seeing in Afghanistan today, and I'll stop so that the discussion can turn, or the, what we saw just a couple of years ago when the Taliban were in power, is that what many preferred to call peace, but it wasn't peace. It's a fear and repression. So this, whatever stability or calmness from Afghanistan which had been labeled as peace, was just the continuation of war and politics. So it was not peace. It has nothing to do with peace. I stop here and then I'll get Thank back. you. Um, uh, General Dallaire, um, coming from a military background, coming from understanding institutions, and especially understanding the failure of institutions, and, and what, what uh, Gisu was, was saying about being at the front lines of seeing huge tragedies, but being individuals uh, ourselves. Where, where did you come into this line of work? And how did you, if you look back and you look back through your career, what, what, what was a surprise and what weren't you expecting? And how do you understand kind of this question of uh, peace and, and no peace, as, as Gisu was, was referring to and Rosa was referring to? It's, Alan, thank you very much. And Gisa, well done. Good question. How did I become a, and wanted, wanted to become even a general. Well, I, I guess it all started by the fact that my father uh, was a, a soldier, a sergeant, and fought six years in war. Uh, and uh, since then, uh, I have continued uh, in a military family and then went uh, through a military career. But uh, what really has brought me into the realm of human rights was, of course, the fact that uh, we had been working on, well, the balance of power in the Cold War and Eurocentric classic use of war, which is the culmination of 300 years of, uh, since the Westphalia uh, Agreement. And what ended up is we stumbled into a new era a new era of imploding nations and failing states. Uh, and we, the, the security forces were uh, absolutely inept and unable to handle it. And we have been still today, still ad hocing a lot, still uh, crisis managing, uh, and ultimately uh, sometimes uh, not responding uh, to the requirements. And so my full engagement came with my experience, of course, in the Rwandan genocide, in which uh, people just did not count. Uh, it, it was not even a factor of whether countries would come and assist us in stopping the slaughter, uh, because uh, they were basing everything on self-interest, uh, and there was nothing in Rwanda that interested them. And so people just were not on the radar. And not only did I see that and live that experience and the ineptness of our international community and, and the abandonment of the little force that I had. But it was also noticing 
in almost horrific way, the use of new weapons of war, uh, of civil war, the, the humiliation, the martyrdom of women, the raping uh, of uh, women and young girls and, and, and young boys, uh, the massive use of youth, uh, child soldiers, militias, who, who conducted the slaughter. Mostly they were indoctrinated into killing over 800,000 and, and 4 million were refugees and so on. Uh, it, that launched me into an, uh, a need how do we prevent conflicts? And so I ended up uh, doing a, a year at Harvard studying how, how would we prevent conflict from happening in these civil wars, which are the most horrific type of war where massive abuses of human rights uh, are uh, the norm. Uh, and as an example, in 2005, my prime minister sent me to Darfur to look at what we could do there. Uh, and I still remember the comprehensive peace agreement that we were working from with the Secretary General, the, the, the Secretary General of the, NATO, Secretary General of the African Union, we're all there around the table talking uh, and realizing that there was not a word, not a presence of a woman. There was nothing on children who were the combatants and still are the major combatants in many of these conflicts. And so that got me into now 20 odd years of working on child soldiers and trying to prevent their recruitment and use as weapons of war uh, and involved finally in a international commission on uh, the principles for peace where there is so much peace that is inept, that is va a vacuum of promises and non-engagement by the communities and the ambitions uh, of uh, countries trying to steal peace and security and ultimately even uh, human rights from the population for their own reasons. That has thrown me into this exercise uh, and I'm very, very happy to be able to continue to work at it and to be invited uh, this morning. And I'm going to try to be brief, even as a retired general. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. I, uh, it's funny because I started in this field in, the, in about 1996 and, um, and was immersed in what, you know, understanding what happened or trying to understand what happened in Rwanda and then Burundi as, as a sort of uh, spillover and, um, reading the reports, reading the the sort of the de the details of the investigations and 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 your story. So so for me, I came into it as as, as you were having that um, as you were living it, and and it was exactly with the same impetus that that how do you prevent and how do you transform these relationships? And and similar to Gisu, you know, having come out of a revolution from uh, in 1979, um, understanding that civil wars or civil conflicts are really the most intractable and difficult and, and the international systems that we have are not really equipped to deal with them. Um, so, so we have to have a new system. And for me, it became this kind of realization or this awareness of the role of women. We had, we, we started talking to women from war zones and it was this extraordinary question of saying, you know, in Israel and Palestine at the time in, in Northern Ireland, um, 
in various places, we had key women who would become involved and it, and it transformed the, the way um, the work was done, which led us to the advocacy for what became the Women, Peace and Security Agenda and the inclusion of women at the peace table. Um, and I have to say that, that 20 years later, sitting here talking about Afghanistan, where every single one of those principles has been completely sidelined. Um, when you say people don't count, we are living this right now every day, every day. The, 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 when you say women weren't at the table, which literally we're seeing consistently, you know, foreign men sitting with the Taliban, negotiating the fate of Afghan women. And then meanwhile, when Afghan women are at risk, we're not giving them the visas to leave the country to have a life. So it's really kind of locking the doors, putting the lid on and saying, um, go for it. And, and, it's, and it's, un, it's hard to understand uh, why this is happening, where, where this inhumanity is coming from. Um, and, and it brings me to, to the next kind of aspect of this, which is that, um, Rosa, you said that people in Colombia don't know what peace is. Um, how would you explain that? How, do you, how would you describe what peace is? Because we, we know what war is, or we know what parts of war look like. But what, what do you think is peace? How do we define it? Are there elements, are there stages of peace? Or is it a process? Or is it a continuous struggle? Oof, it's incredible, but that is a very complicated question. Because... Every time you are changing what you think peace must be. I think peace is very, it's like some, some place where you want to go, but you don't know really what that place looks like. It's like an utopia. It's, it's something like that, that will move you towards something where you feel and that you think that you're going to have a, a good life, that you are going to have dignity, that you are going to have a, a tranquility, that you are going to be away, as you said, away from terror and away from misery. So that is what in general we think and I think is peace. But to reach peace is is so difficult and so complicated because you have to have like internal and external capacities for being for being able to build up that way of behavior that way of of thinking about institutions uh, thinking about cultural transformation to thinking about another way you you need another way of, of living. You need another way of thinking. You need another way of, of reacting. You, you need so many changes to, to reach what you, what I, I really think that is peace. So I really believe that you are all the times building peace. That's why I am a peace builder. I recognize myself as a peace builder because every day you are doing something to change the whole system to be able to reach something like peace. But it's a great effort because all the time you, you are um, confronting a lot of ideas. If, if you are... Um, 
if you try to think about, about another way that you can frame culture, another way that you can frame systems, then you are all the time in that border where people believe that you are against institutions, where you are against everything. So that is very difficult because it's like a deconstruction and a construction, uh, a building up and and deconstruction of the way you think, of the way you, you feel, and the way you uh, confront with law. In our case, for example, uh, we are very, we are, it's very strange because we are very afraid of conflicts because every time we get to conflict, we know that that is going to be very complicated. So we don't know how to manage conflicts. So at the same time, We don't want conflicts, but we react very badly to conflicts. So how we can change the way we react towards conflict, recognizing that conflicts um, can be managed in another way, in a peaceful way that we can get along. But that conflict not needs to have something, an outcome that will really show people that things have changed. Now we have conflicts and conflicts and conflicts that doesn't change anything. Every The outcomes of conflicts are more conflicts. So mm. it's a huge task. So, so Rosa, just, just, to, just to give people context, there was, in Colombia, there was 60 years of ongoing war. Um, sometimes it was felt in the city, sometimes it wasn't. There was a process There's a lot of displacement. It was one of the countries with the highest levels of pe uh, population displacement. You had a peace process that ostensibly was meant to end the conflict. And, and by conflict, we mean the violence. But what's happened since 2016 when the peace, peace agreement was signed? Can you just give an example of what forms of, you know, if one, did one form of violence stop and another form of violence begin? Yeah, I think that the conflicts nowadays have a lot of related conflicts. It's not a pure civil conflict. There are economical conflicts. There are lots of interests all around many, many of our conflicts, like I think in many of our countries. So, yes, we have this. I, I believe it's, it was a very important agreement. I think it's one of the most incredible agreements that have been done. But we need this, we, we needed that this agreement uh, must be owned by people. People must be, see their faces in this. It's not only an elite agreement. You cannot only think that elite people will solve our problems because the ones that are, have suffered are the people, the common people. So people have to see the faces and have to see their feelings in these agreements. So what had happened in our country is that all the related conflicts, narco-traffic and injustice and inequality and all of that has arisen in a very complicated way after the peace agreement was signed. The peace agreement was, the, the idea of the peace agreement was to be a tool for all these changes. And that's when I get, really angry with what low and what sometimes low means for people because it means that we have to do this little. So I am, 
I am doing what law means, what law will make me do, but doesn't use the, the, the tools for peace to change the situation. It's only to, to put my makeup to the situation and not to really go to what is deep. So now we have we are going through another cycle of violence. We are in this shadow and light moment of having the peace agreement and working very hard for the peace agreement. At the same time, having a lot of human rights defenders that has been killed, arise violence, people in the regions are displaced again and having a very hard time. So something is not working. And that the thing that is not working is that we don't work with people and we don't really think that people can have a better idea of peace when they have justice and they have dignity. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to come to you on, on this one because the way that the Afghan context or the, has been framed in the public narrative, certainly in the West, in the United States and in England and elsewhere, is that for 20 years, Afghanistan was this war, the theater of war. You know, we hear this language, theater of war, and we're now in theater, out of theater, you know, as if it was it was just a place for the military to go back and forth. And then, you know, there's been advocacy, we must pull out the military, and all of a sudden the military has been pulled out. You were working all these years, you've been working in Afghanistan, to foster peace, to bring a culture of peace. What the, Can you give me an example of what that means? You know, you, you've talked a lot about publishing books and having film festivals, so that cultural aspect going back to what Rosa's saying around them, changing the, in a way, the mindset. Can you, t- can you kind of give an example of what it means to work for peace in the midst of war or work in parallel when there is both conflict, violent go- conflict going on, but also peace building? Because I, I think that a lot of people don't understand that in any context where there is violence, there is also ordinary life or people struggling to maintain a normal life as you would understand it in a, in a non-war situation. What were you guys doing there? Yeah, thank you. Um, proxy wars and occupation damage societies. I mean, the first immediate thing we think of, because there was lots of mention of civil war. I, I want to look at the other side where I, I don't want it to become the elephant in the room without us talking about it. Um, lives. Uh, are destroyed, homes are destroyed, roads are destroyed, schools are destroyed, but also agency of people is confiscated because you don't know how to do anymore, right? Let's say you're a teacher. There is no school to go to. There is no road to go to. The children are dead or the teachers are dead, sorry. And, And so... And you don't know how to do it anymore. You're in a state of panic, right? Um, so this um, this confiscation of people being people and going about what they're doing, there is no cultural way of resisting occupation or bombs. There, there, it has nothing to do with culture. A bomb is falling. The best you can do if you have space is to run away. Uh, during the Soviet bombing of Afghanistan, some women died in a public bath because they were ashamed to leave, run out of that bath naked. Okay, so there's nothing you can do in that unless 
you are in the classical scheme of knowing how to defend a territory because you can also have a military reaction to that. So in fact, when it comes to Afghanistan, we're talking about this mixture. Uh, I, I mentioned the mother of bombs. Well, someone comes and throws it on your region. What? It has nothing to do with your understanding how society should be reacting to war. So it's not that. So when it comes to some cases of recent interventions around the world, I don't know what it is that the good people of a country should be. That's one thing. However, I think our experience in the last 16, 17 years in Afghanistan was an example of civil society as is at is its best. What do I mean? How do you put together the shattered pieces of a young generation of people whose parents had been killed, uncles had been killed, great uncle was imprisoned, years of living in exile uh, as a poor refugee, etc. People are coming back. There is no center. People don't know each other, don't trust each other. They sometimes don't speak the same language. And schools are opening. Amazing this, Sanam. You know why? That from the furthest villages in Badakhshan, which is the most underdeveloped region of Afghanistan, it's a big region, but with very little attention to it for the last 50 years. People just wanted to send their school kids to school, girl and boy. Okay. You know, I'm what you know what I'm trying to say. It's like like these people represent what people don't want in Afghanistan. It's not true. Every year you have a national entrance exam for universities from the furthest villages of this country to the centers of the small towns or the bigger towns. Tens and thousands of girls and boys sit in those exams hoping to make it to one of the national universities. So we were trying to do our best and we think we were, we have been working with this young generation of girls and boys in very different fields. If things are framed, if the power relations, just to come back to the role of women and the domination of one sex is not challenged, you cannot bear the fruit. The fruit will not ripen. You can say, I'm not questioning this order. I'm not fighting for rights and equality. But if I'm represented in parliament, then I will be able to be a good vocal. This is not enough. We know that. We need time. I look at France. I look at the US. Oh, my God. I don't know how many other decades we need ahead to end racial discrimination in the US. And it's been on the table for so many years, right? So time is an important factor. Time of something which is at least the water well in your girl's school is not poisoned by the Taliban so that you can just send your kids to school, okay? So we needed to have a holistic approach because there are so many things to do. The first woman mayor of Afghanistan was a fantastic young woman who used to work with us. And she was named in Daikundi as the mayor of Nili, small place. What did she do? Clever lady. She says, okay, let me see. I, I, we don't have a road. So if I want to respond to the fact that pregnant women die when they're giving birth because they have no access to clinics, I have to really build a road. So she went out of her way to find the right 
funding, she fought for it, and the road was there. That is questioning power relations, right? It's, it's a road. Okay, so that's why I'm saying, on one hand, it's the question of discourse. The books were burnt in Afghanistan, Sana. Books were also a victim of war. Books were burnt. And so we had to publish books to create libraries of methodology, of thought, of references. Okay? When a policeman called us and said, are you a publishing house? We said, yes. We were kind of fearful. Like, why is this policeman calling us? Because I have to come and see you. Okay, sir, come. They came. He came. And he says, is it true that you have published a book called The Animal Farm by this man called Urvel? We said, yes. He said, please give it to me because I've read 15 pages of it the other day at the airport when a plane was late and I just borrowed a book a guy was reading. It's really interesting. I would like to read it. Why did he want to read Orwell? And I'm not mentioning his name by accident. I think all of us, let's go back and read Orwell again and literature of the kind. Because we are living in an era where war means peace and peace means war. Okay, we are doing our best. We're fantastic citizens. So we have, we create frames where 25, 30,000 people come and speak and they don't end up fighting and they have conflicting views and they're talking about hot issues. But the frame was right. The, it was a safe place. Democracy needs time to practice itself and to build it. So it's not only enough to do symbolic things, but things have to be re repeated so many times. It's like the, the monthly club you have now uh, at LSC to bring people together. I and General Dallaire, if we speak a lot, I won't be impressed by the fact that he's a general. <laughs> and he won't be impressed by the fact that I'm a Eastern feminist questioning occupation. And then maybe we can start, but we need time to practice things. And that's what was derobed of Afghanistan people. Because what was called as peace was an occupation. What was seen as a peace talk was a secret accord to deliver this country to its, not its best children, not its best children. The children who were in poverty went to military schools who are scared of women Talk them devils. I just saw a video. It's terrible. A commander, uh, a, a, a Taliban commander who says, oh, my God, look at those two devils going by. Two women in black, which is not even a color of Afghanistan, by the way. So I don't know what these new machines of war and what the brainwashing and how this is, you know, how this is organized. But we, the people, we know how to heal, to build. We build and the bomb destroys it. So this is the time factor is very important. I don't think it's too much a question of moralistic discussions. It's not, you know, try and be a better person from now on. It's give me time so that my road, I can also put some asphalt on it, please. So that the car can take those women to the clinics. Thank you. Thank you. Um, General Delaire, you hear this and you, again, you've been at the forefront of all this work yourself. Um, and the humanity that deals with these things, and then the institutions. And right now, um, we have a situation in Afghanistan specifically where 
You have the Taliban has taken over. Um, we know this. They have, as of yesterday, we've heard news of not only incidences of girls being forced into marriage, quote unquote, to save their families. So this is going to be a life of servitude and rape for young women um, to supposedly save their families. Um, we've heard of prisons being opened, prosecutors and judges being threatened, um, vic- women who were in shelters have you know there have been at least one case that's we we know of that's been reported where the husband came and killed her. Um, there are there's reports that they may be calling the women's shelters brothels, so it's places where women have gone to seek security and safety from violence to now be framed like this. So either they're going to be thrown into the street or God knows what's going to happen to them. So we have this kind of we have girls being told that they can't go to school from above the age of eleven. Um, women not being allowed to go to work. This, these things are happening in, in real time. I and mean, we are hearing this news. On the other hand, we also have a humanitarian crisis. There's a, you know, food is short. People haven't been paid. Trying, you know, the borders aren't open for, and, and so forth. So the international community has gone in. And we're hearing the same conversations we heard 20 years ago. That first we have to do a deal with the, you know, first we deal with the humanitarian, then we deal with the political, right? As if women's well health and well-being and girls' schools and so forth is a political issue. But these are humanitarian issues, aren't they? Do we not think of humanitarian as the whole of humanity and and everybody having access to 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 um, food and the healthcare and so forth is—is is that not how we should be thinking about it? I'm just wondering. I don't know whether whether we've lost General Delaire because of of a uh, of a of a link, but um, but you know, I've, when he comes back, I'll I'll, I'll ask him this question. Gisujan, what do you? How, I mean, and, and Rosa, how do you see this 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 issue of the international community coming in and saying determining? Oh yeah, you're back with us. Um, I'm just I'm just thinking that what happens when the international community decides to they're going to come in and have a say without including the local public. What do we do with that? I mean, especially now when you're thinking about principles for peace, inclusive peace, and so forth. What's the, mo- what, what's the, how do we do this differently? How should we be doing this differently now? We're, we, the, the volume, the, it's mute. Yeah, I know. Sorry, I'm, I'm okay. turning everything off because I got, we got a lot of wind here and, and so there, there's a lot of interference. So uh, I'm trying to maximize and I hope my voice is coming through. It is. Uh, Thank you. Now, uh, the, the first premise, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that we're working from is one that of, of a male-dominated world. Let's start from the reality of what and who has launched us into an era now uh, that is culminated from hundreds of years of war and conflicts and so on into a very complex and ambiguous era in which we are in, uh, in which the security forces uh, have been a a dominant element of any peace agreement or attempts at peace um, and have proven to be uh, often uh, incapable of meeting the challenge of our time, of these very demanding conflicts. The second thing is is that 
This male dominance is affecting not only the leadership thinking and philosophy of the world, but it's also being nurtured by things like misogynist religions. It's also being uh, reinforced by the fact uh, that there is a, a sort of segregation uh, of power. And so empowerment of women uh, is a essential element of future security, future peace and the building of peace. When, when I was sent in, I, I was given the job of establishing an atmosphere of security. What does that mean? What, what, what does it mean I establish martial law, no weapons? What, what is an atmosphere of security? And must, we must remember that uh, nation building is not a military strategy. Security is but one component in the stabilization exercise. However, all the stabilization efforts uh, with the security actors and security actors and also non-state actors uh, have been short-term military focused uh, and have not been integrated with the other disciplines that are needed to establish peace. Peace in itself is not a military strategy. Peace is a resultant of Yes, security as an ultimate requirement. Yeah, that's true. But you've got the whole dimension of uh, uh, cultural, uh, economic, um, uh, the building a nation with uh, the governance needed, uh, fighting impunity, uh, justice. How do you bring all these other disciplines to work at the same time as the security one in order to bring peace? Because in the era we're in, it's not like the past. I mean, the past was, you know, you have diplomats and politicians going at each other. They have an impasse. They decide to declare war. They turn it over to the generals who use the youth of their own nation. They go, they beat up the other guy. Somebody wins. And then after that, you try to bring a reconciliation, part, a very sequential sort of exercise. Not anymore. We stumbled into an era where we don't even have the right lexicon of how to figure out this concurrent integrated problem that exists of which security is only a component of. Yet security has dominated all the peace agreements and has dominated the investments and ultimately has skewed the ability of the rest of the disciplines to expand. Now the humanity side of the house, yes, of course, you need an emergency response, but that emergency response is a very short-term requirement. What is needed is in-depth engagement by the community, by the people, that they buy into whatever agreement is done by these men sitting around a table and trying to figure out what the next steps are. The other thing is, is that political, and I was a senator for 10 years, the politicians have very short-term ambitions, right? And so 10 years, 20 years, even you know, when they say 20 years, they've been in Afghanistan. Listen, if you're going into nations to assist them in preventing ultimately war and massive abuse of human rights, or try to stop it and, and rekindle the nation into a new era, you're in there for 40 years, 50 years. We've been in Cyprus for 60 years. So this uh, uh, time limitation 
and the massive engagement and cost of the military side without an equal engagement of all these other disciplines to build peace, not win a war. That's one thing. It's to build peace from day one, not when we send in the troops and then hopefully the, the atmosphere is enough that we can start talking about the other stuff. No, no, no. All of them have got to go in at the same time with risks, but ultimately with an ability to work in an integrated way. So ladies, we are not even close to solutioning uh, prevention of conflicts, let alone resolving conflicts. We're still trying to figure out exactly what is the essence of a conflict and the essence of what peace is. And that's what my work is on stabilization. Stabilization is not military intervention that ultimately hands over to other people. It is an integrated capability that is long-term and in-depth, but by, bought in by every element of the society from the ground up, with the security side being in the backdrop of trying to permit, yes, the movement of uh, these different disciplines so that they can grow. So ladies, your work, you know, the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, the work I'm doing with Children, Peace and Security, and trying to get the CAC Agenda in 1612, and trying to get uh, Children, Peace and Security Agenda established, we're in this together. And, and, and children, <laughs> I always find it difficult to understand why children are kept separate from, as an example, from women. Because uh, your Women Peace Agenda has girls in it, but the child soldier, the use of children, the abuse of children, they're not a peripheral element. They're a core reason why conflicts continue. Children are used to sustain conflicts. They don't win them. They just sustain them. And so if you don't get a, 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 a jumelage of, of, of these two groups that have not been part of the exercise, or very little, then you even on the security side, you're not even going to come close to solving the problem. So there is no such thing as a winning a war anymore. It is how do you establish an atmosphere of peace and security by integrating all the components both in the societies and with the outside support into a lasting peace. And women and children are not at the table enough, and they are crucial to bringing new ideas, new dimensions, and get the ego of all those men to slow down and understand the complexity and ambiguity of establishing peace. And that's my short answer on that one. Thank you. No, it's, it's you know, I, again, I have spent 25 years saying that we need women at the peace table. I was involved in getting the first resolution and writing all this and all these things. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, I've reached a point right now where I think that conceptually our agenda, our agendas are very important and the feminist approach and so forth, all these things are very important. But practically speaking, um, our international community, or at least that those countries that for 20 years have waived 
these agendas around and said they're the pen holders, including the United Kingdom and so forth, have failed abjectly. You know, when you think about, when you think about the, I mean, in the, in the um, Colombian peace process, it took a lot of advocacy and pressure to finally open the space. It was because Norway had an envoy there. It was because there was work behind the scenes and, and the history of, of, of uh, women's activism to open it, open the peace process gradually to bring women to the table to bring women into the process, not necessarily even to the table where the negotiations were happening. In the case of Afghanistan, the U.S. envoy, who's been the same person for 20 years, pretty much, laughed into the face of Afghan women who said they wanted to have their delegations there. They la- he laughed at them. And the design of the process was to put, you know, apart from the United States having its own deal with the Taliban, separate from the government, when they designed it, they said, okay, half of the room is going to be Taliban, one delegation. And the other half is going to be a mishmash of government, opposition. Uh, you know, we'll have four women, you know, two young guys. It was instead of saying, let's have a multi-stakeholder peace process where we have a delegation of women. They can be women from the different professions. You know, you have a lawyer, a police officer, a doctor, a, a peace builder, a human rights activist, you could have delegations of women and young people and, and so forth to negotiate and learn to talk amongst themselves, as Rosa said, right? We, these ideas, we have them. We have research that proves that this could be better than what we have right now. And yet it's not done. So the question for me is, I mean, just as a thought exercise, if, if Afghan women had had their own delegations to the talks in Doha since 2012, would we be where we are now with Afghanistan? Just as a, I have know. a comment to make, Sanam, on this. Yeah, go ahead. That how can you have negotiations in the absence of people? But that's the what people. I'm saying. Yes, if you had. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm yeah. just saying, um, what was this simulacre of a peace talk, this uh, show, which was done in the in the best art of it. Wow, we're in Doha, we have the delegations, we have the people, etc. And we from the field, from the grassroots, what we were saying is that how can this be done in the absence of what people want? Because maybe public opinion, the democratic public opinion, I'm not talking about those who have arms only. Mm-hmm. Because building peace is not only... Um, L'arrêt des hostilités, it's not only uh, stopping gunfire, it's crafting something, it's building, it has to be inclusive, participative, and bring the best minds together to build it, people with vision, etc. From the field, anyways, the constituencies we have been speaking to for the last 15, 16 years of different walks of life, they felt they were not at all part of this. This was one yet another show of, oh, okay, guys, we're dealing with you. Don't worry, you know, sorry, go kill yourself because you only have 2% of women, uh, etc. And sorry, the minorities aren't there. Sorry, the Democrats aren't here, etc., etc. So this was not really taken seriously by the people, Sana. People were like, okay, I mean, what say have we had really in whatever decision is being made for us. Yeah, I was talking about confiscation of agency. 
It's my country. I know what to do. I always remember this discussion the World Bank was having with Mexican um, engineers because uh, the World Bank was going to build a, a bridge. And they were like, our experts have said we have to make this bridge here on this river. And the Mexican engineers were saying, no, you can't make it here. They were like, why? Because for 200 years in winter, the water will break this bridge. We know the bridge should be made further down, etc. This consultation, because of this half peace, half war, and so many uh, militarized agents in the whole discussion, like what the general was saying, which is such an important... Uh, we're asking the wrong people to build peace. He doesn't know how to build peace. He was trained to build war. And we're saying, you come and determine what the criteria of how we have to live together. Uh, who, who are the experts you're talking to? My other people from Afghanistan who are in the same field as me, i.e. they're militarized or they were ex-commanders or they are... ISI agents or they're Pakistani, I don't know what. So that, that's the problem. So this is people, it was in the absence of, the missing chair at that table was the people of Afghanistan. That's why so many had difficulty believing that even if really good, handful of good people went there, women's rights activists went, one or two Democrats went, the whole frame was wrong. So you can't impact it. You create an expectation where in fact you're not part of the conversation. So I just, I'm going to bring this to Rosa. So Rosa, in the case of Colombia, the process started very exclusively in Cuba. And then it was gradually a commission here and a commission there. Was it, did, 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 did it go up to a point, but not far enough? Because you also said that the people were not involved, that people didn't, you know, we had a referendum in the end and, and to, you know, it, it didn't win. They didn't win to begin with, right? What, what is it? If, if you wanted to go back and say, how should it have been done before? You know, from, again, going back to the process, right? I'm not saying, how do we stop the conflict 60 years ago? Right? But if, if, what, is the, what would be the key messages from Colombia to Afghanistan? And frankly, from Afghanistan now to Yemen and Cameroon and to all these other places where, are, where we are repeating our international community is repeating the same mistakes. And, and I have one question because, because we talk a lot about the generals and the military. I have a beef with the diplomats personally, but I'll, but I'll come to that in a, in a minute. Rosa, if, yeah, what, what could have been done if, you know, two or three things that you think could have been done differently in Colombia um, in terms of bringing the public with you? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's quite complicated. It was not only because it was, a kind of exclusivity to do this um, negotiation in Cuba is because our country is so polarized and so complicated that if that negotiation was to be done in Colombia, it will never happen. So that is the first. So it was strategic to have it outside of the country. So that was a, a huge lesson. Sometimes you have to do negotiations outside. If not, Public will also, politicians will not allow to do any kind of negotiation. The second thing, I think uh, it was so, it was so complicated, this negotiation. 
many people were so angry with the FARC and many people were so angry with the government and people were so angry with the uh, what we, what they are called the uh, autodefensas the paramilitars that there was a lot of complicated things to talk so i think one of the things that it should have been done all the time is to give information to people information but nowadays and also to give information in a very in a in a way that people can discuss this information can be part of this information can can talk about this and begin to see their own confrontations we need to have like a um, a peace agreement between the whole society. But, Sanam, you are forgetting the environment of communication and all the fake news and all that. And that is a crucial point nowadays in peace because when there are political interests and when there are so many things, this kind of information is so bad because they... They in that moment that we have the peace agreements, all these fake news were like beginning. No, there was this huge idea of uh, giving very bad news, so you make people afraid of the peace of peace agreements. So I think that you have to be aware that people don't know what is happening, and that people have to have like a like confidence in that the process will be better for them, not for the ones that are in the negotiation. It's not about the FARC people. It's not that they are going to have ju a special justice and so on. So it's because that is good for all the country. And, and that, I think it was a lot of confusion between people had the idea that the peace agreement were was farbo it, it was good for the FARC, maybe for the government, but was not really good for people. It's not, it was not going to change real root problems for people. And I must add to all these ideas of, of contrary to having something that will, will confront all this, the fake news and the com bad communication and without like a building capacity for people to understand peace agreements. We also have the idea of what uh, General Romeo was talking about militarization and security, but now we have the problem of private security and all these kind of things that you cannot control anymore. You have seen what has happened to Haiti. You have seen what is happening in Latin America. We have lots of people of private armies that are not controlled by state. In the case of Colombia, these private states that can be paid by private people that have economical, political interests are one of the things that we have to address because this, this private security is doing a lot of harm in a very private way because they just hire people and they just send people to do many things that it's supposed that not even the state will know. So I really want to arise also this problem of private security because now it is redu it's reduced to this idea of security 
this military security, this kind of confrontation, not matter what is happening in the government or in the peace agreement or whatever. It's like the moving of the power to someone that can pay for that private security. We have 15 minutes. We've had a number of questions about, you know, what's a feminist approach? And I, th I think implicitly you've talked about it, about the inclus inclusion and, and this imagining an alternative and so forth. We've talked about the question of how do you affect a humanitarian crisis? You know, how does a humanitarian um, aid and the military side come together, right? It's, it's like, do you, need, do you need military security to provide humanitarian aid or... Or not. Again, in Afghanistan right now, okay, the Taliban is supposedly providing some modicum of security for the aid to come in, but is it really security for, for the whole population? So, so we have these, these questions. My, in the last 15 minutes, I wanted to come back to what Rosa, this, this complexity, right? Uh, General Delaire, you said at the beginning, 20 years ago, we stumbled into this world. Um, people didn't count. We need to think about the prevention. We need to think about, we have these agendas of whether it's women, peace and security, the children in armed conflict, uh, the responsibility to protect. What happened to that? Right? We've used, we used responsibility to protect in 2012 to go bomb Libya. We start, we use responsibility to actually start a war. And, but we haven't, we've forgotten about it in the case of, of Afghanistan right now or many of the other countries where, where we're looking. It's been 76 years since the end of World War II um, at a moment in history when our predecessors sat down and said, it's not just enough to say we want to prevent the scour scourge of war. They said that, you know, for future generations. They also had this vision of the universal rights and, and human rights and, and, and kind of peace and security architecture around the world. If we have squandered that system, because of the ways that we have you know, gone to war in Iraq when, when the Security Council said no, or gone to war in Yemen, even though it should, the Security Council's only job is to stop member states fighting with each other, right? So Saudi Arabia bombing, bombing Yemen. Even if we have squandered these, this, what was given to us, and at the same time, we have this complexity that you're talking about, of these civil proxy wars, private security actors, and so forth. How do we... What do we need to build now? What needs to change now within our multilateral system so that we're giving, so that we're seeding and sowing something for the next generation to, to actually draw on? Because I want to come back to this, this question of what we're doing to women and youth. Afghanistan is 62% under the age of 25. 14, over 40% are under the age of 14. Yemen has similar statistics. In, in Colombia, the vast majority of people being killed and, and implicated are young people. So in all of these conflicts, going back to what you were saying, uh, General Delaire, children are being used for the purposes of war. The, the diplomats or the negotiators who sit at these tables, how are they held accountable for doing it badly? Well, the first thing is they're not. Uh, and the second thing is, is that even the Security Council is not being held accountable for the decisions it's taking. And, and you mentioned R2P, and I've been involved with R2P since, since the start in 2000 with, and, and been a proponent of it. And even with the, the Montreal Institute of Genocide Studies and working for Kofi Annan, 
plan on prevention of genocide, uh, we, we saw at least R2P as a positive new instrument in the potential uh, of protecting civilians. Remember, responsibility protects says that the human being, individual human being is sovereign, not the state. And so it, it for the first time said that uh, since Westphalia, that uh, state sovereignty cannot be used anymore as a reason to um, uh, conduct mass atrocities or uh, massive abuses of, of human rights. However, uh, we really haven't used it properly uh, because the instruments to how to operationalize have never been put forward, how to control it, how to, how to implement it. There are the six uh, the conditions for use of force, but they always end up by using R2P as an excuse or as a cover for use of force, where in fact, that's the last thing you're using in, in the process. I also think that there, we're into, we're, we just don't know the answers. The Rosa's complexity in, in Colombia, you know, and, and including the Aboriginal people and how they were, uh, I consider that they've lived a, a, a cultural genocide, the way we've moved them around uh, because of uh, economic interests of mining and things like that, let alone the kids who were the children, their children were used uh, extensively by the rebel forces and so on. In, in Afghanistan, I, I remember sitting on the Senate Committee on Defense and interviewing General Petraeus when he was commanding at the time. And I asked him, I said, how are you doing in your communications with the NGO community who cover the spectrum? And there, there were nearly 7,000 NGOs running around. And so I said, how are you communicating with them to know what's going on on the ground? How, what people really need? And how are you using that to move your assets and shift them from purely a militaristic application to a reinforcement of nation building and, 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 and so on. And he said, I'm not talking to them. And I said, why aren't you talking to them? He says, they don't want to talk to me. And so the, just in, in, in the exchange, we see that those security forces, and remember, security forces are not just military, they're paramilitary, they're uh, para-police, you know, gendarmerie. Uh, they're intelligence agencies that have their own uh, capabilities. Uh, there are, of course, uh, uh, their own um, security companies and so on, as uh, uh, has been raised so, so far. So security and security actors are in themselves a whole complex bunch, and many of them are operating independently. And, and, and sometimes uh, putting each other at risk. So your question is, where do we go from here? Well, remember one thing, if I may say, is as we were building the UN, we were also building nuclear weapons. We built during the time that we put the UN together and, and in 40, it put the, 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 the Charter of, of, of Human Rights together. We were building the capability of wiping out the whole of humanity. And, and the, the essence of conflict was whether we're going to kill each other by nuclear means. And that's still there. We've invested hundreds of billions in modernizing nuclear weapons. We haven't done that on climate. Remember that as a significant factor coming in. 
nor have we done it on actually preventing uh, nations from letting parts of their nation create frictions that ultimately lead to conflict, like Darfur was. And so in that era that we have stumbled into, we're just barely, not even 30 years into it. The other one, we had over 300 years of practice of how to sort that one out. And it ended up with the Cold War culminating and, and ending. But after that, as George Bush Sr. said, you know, we're, we're now in a new era of, of peace. No, we entered an era, in fact, of instability. And I would argue that lack of inclusivity and true inclusivity in the peace agreements, in how to formulate the instruments of creating peace agreements and who should be and what and so on. That inability to bring that together as we provide potentially some security needs is letting the security run the show and ultimately overlap into areas that is not of their purview because we have just not got the buy-in and the instruments to get the buy-in. And so uh, in my belief, we have to reconceptualize interventions. Kinetic use of force is the last resort of use of military. The military should be a value added into the security envelope of stabilization that starts with inclusivity and in particular, with changing the balance fundamentally of who's at the table. And the changing of balance is male, female. We cannot solve the problem. The men have screwed it up. And we cannot bring new ideas until the egos of the males are put in their place by the presence of women and their ability and their skills and what they feel. Who is closer to children than, 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 than the mother? Yet, as an example, we don't have a real tight link between children, peace and security, and women, peace and security, you know, fully inclusive. And some countries where I've worked in Africa, over 50% of the population is under 18. Now, ladies, I believe uh, that there is so much to be learned from, use term feminist, I got no problem with that, from bringing women deliberately into the exercise and youth deliberately, not tokenism. They are the ones who are fighting. They're the ones who are dying. They're the ones who are also killing and raping and, and, and ruining their lives and the future of their nation. We should get them involved and hold them accountable also in the exercise. Thank you. I'm going to give the last words to Rosa and to Gisu um, in terms of, you know, what, what General Delaire has been saying. Rosa, you've been working on this for over 20 years. Gisu, you and I, have been, we've all been working on these issues, exactly this issue for so long at every level. Um, 21 years of Women, Peace and Security, September 21st today, International Day of Peace. I always say we should have 364 days of peace and one day of let the guys go and fight it out in an arena for themselves and let the rest <laughs> of us live. But um, what, would you, what would you say now, Rosa? Um, 
you know, you to, right now you're going to go back to work and what keeps you going? What is it that you keep fighting for? And, and Gisu the same. It's like, how do we, how do you keep doing what you're doing? Because it can be soul searing sometimes to see the barriers and the inertia and the male egos as, as, uh, as general Dallaire was saying. Or is it go for- uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, although we have so many problems, I, I will take some words that Giso said. We need time. We need time, but we need space. Time and space. Autonomy. We need to build up what we think that piece. And I think, although it seems so complicated, and it is so complicated, something and that is what I call the echoes of the peace agreement are in our hearts. So we are all the time, we, we really believe that, that things are changing, but things change in a very slow way and all the other things go in a very quick way. So I think that we are, we is like, like, I don't know, we are building something that I know, that I feel, I recognize, and I think that all these feminist people working and all these new ideas from from feminism bringing on board discussions on security, discussions on peace, discussions on development, and and all all, all these questions are, are building something that I cannot explain. But I can say that my country is the same when one uh, 15 years ago and now. I think we have changed. We have changed. We, so we have to, I have all the time in my head that we are changing. There are more empowered women. They are more conscious there. And now we are going to have elections next next year. So I think that every time we go to, uh, we, we really think that we are building up the power, the citizenship power and the women's power to make our voice every time louder, but not only shouting, giving more arguments, giving more research, giving more answers, giving more ideas, to how the world should look like. So it's a long way. It's a long way, I know. But I I believe that I'm not going to, to know peace in my country because I'm not so young, but I know that we are going towards that. It's taking a lot of effort. It's, it's a really strong struggle. But something inside me, I don't know how to explain that, in my heart and my mind, will always say we are achieving things very slowly we are changing changing all the time we are changing it's very dynamic and i really believe and that's why i keep on going doing this work because i believe thank you gisu gisu for you where you know it's we're looking at the cusp of 20 years of struggle or efforts in the midst of war to build peace how how do you keep going and what what is it that you hope will be left or we create Peace is not the absence of struggle. Human beings struggle for better lives, for uh, social justice, for access to work, for end of all sorts of discriminations, of of sexism, of equality, uh, conflict of class, uh, etc. So peace doesn't mean absence of struggle. 
its absence of war. Uh, struggle is not war. Struggle is you're moving forward to change things in a better way so that people can live together in a better way. Now, I really think that two things have happened to the countries who are in the power structures of the world, be it at the Security Council, uh, heading the big institutions, the financial institutions, etc., is that Western societies are also paying the price of their militarized leadership. They don't realize it. The American, the average American doesn't realize what it means that its country is permanently in war. It doesn't get it. It doesn't see how it impacts its own life and how he or she as a citizen cannot live to its full extent the democratic system in its con in in her in her or his country that's why governments are not accountable people have been taken away from being uh in the conversation about oh, shall we go occupy um, or bomb or assist or bring hope or peace or save the women in Iraq today or Libya tomorrow or Afghanistan. People are not part of that conversation, the people of these countries. So there is also this confiscation of agency. And so there is very little accountability. You go and vote every four, five years, depending on the country. Uh, but in fact, you're giving a, a blank check for your government during that period to do as it wishes, sell nuclear submarines or try to sell nuclear submarines to a given country and the other one goes and sells his own. So I don't think that the average citizen is well-informed. It is not. Nor does it really have the capacity of questioning what's happening. So if everyone did their own homework well, if our American Democrats, our French Democrats, our Canadian British Democrats were really in that relationship with their powers, power systems, where they were demanding accountability, where they had a say in it, um, we would not end up receiving an A to Z package, which includes on one hand the bombs, plus make sure you do the women, peace and security stuff. Make sure you have NGOs, and NGOs are the representative of civil society. We are facing a package which is so well uh, fine-tuned now. It was not the case in classical colonialism. Classical colonialism was more difficult. You had to make sure the kids of the elites went to your universities. Then, you know, you would, you would send people to the American University in Beirut and then have the next leaders like we see in Afghanistan or even in Iran, etc. Now it's much better and much sophisticated. Make sure you give the peace prize to a woman from Afghanistan or Libya, etc. Everything is in a package. Now, seeing from this side, not looking at it from Washington, okay, I'm looking at it from this side. It's very difficult to understand why we have had the chance of having something called the International Criminal Court. How is it acceptable for the democratic world, the signatories of the Rome status, to accept that the Trump administration 
put under sanction the prosecutor general of the ICC. The ICC is an achievement for the people of the world. It doesn't belong to anyone. And what was this shy reaction by the other powerful, sometimes member of the uh, UN security? So for us, we are now living in a packaged A to Z. Everything has been thought out. I'm going to destroy your building. I'll give you some money. Can you do the glass frames well? You'll have enough budget to make sure you have nice windows. The whole house and the foundation is broken. So we feel, I believe, I feel, Sana, as a human rights, women's rights, peace, cultural activists, that I no longer know what to do right now. That's the reality. I don't know how to, I cannot even save the 51 people with whom we built this beautiful holistic uh, intervention, social, let's say, intervention. We don't know what to do with our 15,000 books. We will not burn our own books. But we published books because the others had burnt books in that country. Who are the, where are the Democrats of the world with power to ask for accountability, to question their government and end impunity, which is now, it seems, the worldwide rule. Uh, rule. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for that very frank ending to say we don't know what to do because we've done what we could do or we've tried to do. And our partners, and I want to end with this, that we do have many partners who remain at risk Right now in Afghanistan, people who are affiliated with the LSC Center for Women, Peace and Security for the research that they were doing, they are stuck there because we didn't, our governments didn't take care or think that they mattered enough to bring them out. And now it is us as citizens that are struggling to bring them out. We are in a situation where, as Gisu says, we're looking at the need to burn books and burn education certificates, things that were meant to give people opportunity. Now they have to be burnt or destroyed to ensure life. And, and instead, we have left behind all the weapons, all the military equipment, biodata, all sorts of things that can kill people we left behind in droves and droves, and we, we keep exporting them in droves and droves, and all the things that were meant to be life-giving and, and, and opportunities and justice and, and, and peace, our governments have failed. So, so this, is, this, is a, this is a moment of reckoning. The Afghanistan story is genuinely a moment of reckoning in terms of, in terms of where we are with the culture of peace and our international systems. And I want to just thank my guests today for this very frank conversation. Um, and I'm sorry for the audience that we don't have proper answers, but maybe that's a good start. It's rock bottom as a pretty good foundation for building something positive. So, so we handed over, uh, I handed over to my colleagues back at, at, the, at the LSE in terms of um, closing off um, the session. Thank you so much. The webinar will be available uh, online very soon. Bye-bye.